Cracking Copy is a marketing and copywriting podcast where we lift the lid on writing for business and read between the lines of effective copy. This is a podcast for creative entrepreneurs and savvy business owners like you who understand the value that great copy can bring to their bottom line. We dive into a different aspect of writing for business in each episode, debunk the myths about how we should write and explore the ways that writing can be fun, conversational and creative, while also being high impact for serious results. So listen, laugh and learn with us, Ella Hoyos and Minnie McBride, as we share our words and wisdom in each snack-sized episode. Expect some light bulb moments, interesting guests and practical takeaways as we crack the copy code together. Hello and welcome to Cracking Copy. Today I am very delighted to have the lovely Eloise Leeson on. Eloise and I met on LinkedIn of all places and we've come together today to talk about linguistics. Now I was fascinated to hear about Eloise as she describes herself on LinkedIn, I think, as the audience whisperer. And that immediately got me curious. I had to know more about it because as a copywriter, I've learned that sort of getting into the minds of your ideal prospects and clients I do it mainly through voice of customer research and data mining, but I was very interested to hear from a linguistics expert point of view how you do it. So without further ado, here's Eloise. Eloise, please introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about you. I would love to, Ella. Thank you so much for having me on. So as you said rightly, my name is Eloise Leeson. And well, it's easier to say that I'm an audience whisperer rather than a strategic linguistic consultant. Uh, but that is broadly what I do. It's comms related, it's linguistic strategy, and it helps a lot of companies to more tightly align their communications output with the strategic goals that they have in-house and what they want to achieve for the benefit of their customers. And that's why I'm so excited to be here to speak with you because the customer piece is so important, getting into the mindset of your customer, not just copywriters, but for audience trust and building relationships with people and a whole wealth of other things are just essential for good business. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about the types of um, clients that you work with and the types of work that you might do for them. Absolutely. So with the, the kind of clients that I tend to work with or who benefit, I found most from the, the, the approach of work that I take is B2B clients. And that's generally because these companies are, they're big, they're often quite siloed, they're very um, focused on jargon and product benefit, typically. Um, and they generally have this wall that they hit where they go, we have a product that no one's buying, it's probably because no one understands what it is. So my work then is around creating accessibility in language, readability, helping them to understand the mindset of their customer. You might have the sexiest product on the planet, and I'm sure you do, all you SaaS companies. But if you're not thinking about what that enables your customer to have back in their diet, is it more time? Is it more revenue? All of these good things, you're just not going to be able to sell in a meaningful and effective and sustainable way. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to basics today in this episode. Um, this is for people who are new to this whole term of linguistics, and we're just going to cover off of what that means. Um, how would you define this subject? That is such a good question. So linguistics as a subject is kind of in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly new 
field of study. So linguistics is the sort of science and discipline of language as an entity. So lots of people who speak different languages call themselves linguists and they're very right to do so. But linguistics as a, as a kind of principle is more about how language works. So how do I know that what I'm saying makes the same sense in my head as it does in your head when you receive it? What are the different cultural nuances that we encounter when we are learning different languages? So idiomatic phrases, thinking about how children learn language. You know, I know you have two little ones and your girls, when they learned language growing up, they heard all of the incomplete data, as we would call it. So they would hear ums and ahs and missteps and, you know, potentially incorrect grammar at some points. But even as little people, they still develop that into the perfect grammar that they now use without even thinking on a daily basis. And then you have the rest of the stuff like syntax and semantics and morphemes and morphology and phonology. And the field of study is huge, but ultimately it's, to me, it's very much about human connection and how is language used to connect us as a community and as a society more effectively. Right. So am I right in understanding that it, this is about verbal communication? Verbal Sorry for interrupting. No, so it's yeah. not not really. Um, so when it comes to linguistics, we look at things like um, so historical linguistics, which you could argue isn't verbal because everyone's dead who spoke it. Um, but you could look at decoding languages. You can look at where did language originally come from, things like language trees and Proto-Indo-European languages. Um, but you can also look at nonverbal body language, which is really important, especially for doing live audience research. Mm -hmm. And you're picking up on what your prospect is saying, but you know maybe their body is saying something a little bit different. So verbal, definitely nonverbal body language, written language, structures of grammar. It really spans everything and anything to do with language as an entity yeah yeah and in my research for the show I sort of looked it up on Wikipedia and I did some research about linguistics as, as, like I say it's kind of a new concept and it goes deep and it goes into oh. there is it like a tree with lots of branches there are so many different aspects to it aren't there you sort of reeled off quite a few of them before so I guess uh, one definition I've got here the sort of difference between a, a linguist and a grammar grammarian grammarian how do you say that grammarian <laughs> yeah, but simply put, you know, a grammarian deals with language as it's supposed to be, especially in formal writing, and a linguist deals with language as it is, regardless of whether it conforms to rules or not. So your job, as I understand it, is to describe language, to record it and to analyse it and how it works and theorise about how we learn it. But you're not necessarily setting rules as to how you should use the language or is that something that clients want from you Do they want you to tell them oh we're doing it wrong and here's how we should be saying it these are such good questions so first of all I will die on the hill of being a linguist and not a grammarian so I <laughs> there's a really great meme on the internet I'm going to have to send this to you um, but it's basically there's a guy who is who's putting nails in as the tide is coming in and you can see the sand you can see the water and you can see the nails and he is described as being human and the ocean wave is described as the inherent indescribable nature of the universe and the nails are the language affecting to hem that in so mm -hmm. language is like humanity it changes all the time and it's you know maybe the broad principles of who we are stay constant but we are always looking at new concepts new things new evolutions in society and language changes with that it changes with people so grammarians i i respect and i have a lot of time for but anyone telling me well you should speak a language this way i'm sat there going well you can't because language changes you know grammarians mm. who 
who were around during Chaucer's time would find themselves on a different planet, linguistically speaking, today. And it's that shift that we have in terms of the way we form language in our community groups, in our families. More broadly, we have different concepts that emerge all the time. You can't force language to stay the same all the time. And to do so means that if you have only one standard that is acceptable, then you're denigrating every other kind of language. If you say only, you know, English spoken by white upper class people is appropriate English, then you have just totally, I mean, damaged and harmed an entire group of, of, of communities whose language is absolutely every bit as valid and important as a you know, a hypothetical standard. So when it comes to what I do with clients, I do a lot of work around what values do you want to communicate? Because it's the core of what you're saying, not necessarily how you're saying it, that, that you want to try and improve how it comes across. Now, a lot of people have great intentions and the how has just gone awry, that's okay. But really the focus is how can we more clearly communicate and express the values that we really pride ourselves on and that our clients and our customers come to us for and value us for having. Mm -hmm. I guess a lot of the companies that you work for are quite big name, like Capgemini, and they're big multinational companies. Is that because of these the cultural difference, you know, the cultural differences in language as well? So even in our own language, as you say, if we all spoke just English, even that is evolving and transitioning and, and can be, you know, new words are coming in all the time. And they, depending on the, the tone and the way we, the context in which we use them, they can be perceived differently by different people but then you throw in a whole load of sort of multiculturalism into the mix as well and you've got a real melting pot to yeah to make sense of this for corporations um, and to help them communicate better yeah so there are two facets sometimes to what I do so a lot of what I do is, is kind of customer oriented so you know I I want to serve my client ultimately my ultimate client is their customer because if I can help them engage with their customer better I've served my client the other side though is that your employees are also people who are part of your kind of linguistic ecosystem um and I think that there are other people out there who are far better qualified than I am to do that kind of work especially if you're dealing with different cultures what I can do is if you have um so different cultures for example can be um geographical they can be um differences in terms of um maybe even regional variations different cultures than a region so you could consider Britain as a culture but we have England and Scotland and they are often polar opposites in certain things you might look at workplace culture for example so you know these are stereotypes and forgive me for using them but you might have a sales team that's very charismatic and very driven and very kind of like alpha um, very ambitious and then you might have your dev and tech team who are really good with not talking to anybody for 12 hours a day and they are going to have very different language cultures workplace cultures within those those different teams you're still playing on the same team of the organization that you work in but you're not you're not necessarily playing together so what i can do is stick those people in the same room and say tell me what's going wrong and what, what do you wish the other team knew about how you work and what you do and your value because i think a lot of times we struggle with silos and organizations and lots of comms breakdowns because there are these unspoken cultural differences from a workplace perspective but there are an amazing amazing individuals out there who work on improving different cultures in global workplaces so if you have 
I think, for example, Renault is a great example of a company that has operations all around the globe, um, obviously headquartered in France, but maybe they, you know, there's a great book called The Culture Map by Aaron Mayer that I have recommended probably to everybody I've ever encountered and they're sick of hearing about it. There's a great example in that book of cultural differentiation and how we all need to learn to be more sensitive to the different expectations from other cultures because they can really cause lots of interesting um, situations in the workplace and how can you respect and work around the um, approaches of other people for a better and, and smoother and more effective office culture. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, that's taking it into the sort of corporates, but a lot of our audience on Cracking Copy are small businesses. We're writing for ourselves. We're doing the work on the ground, building from the ground up. How can linguistics what do we need to know about linguistics that will help us as writers uh, to improve the way that we are perceived because it, it essentially it's about how your communication is perceived by your ideal audience your prospect there are some tools i could definitely give um in terms of measuring your copy so i think everybody is is broadly in agreement that your copy is not about you it's about your reader um and all the best businesses and i think one of the great things about small businesses is that you are often much more closely connected to your clients and your customers than big organizations are. So you already have an advantage because you're going to know them, you're going to know their frustrations, you're going to know their hopes and their challenges, the problems that they have, stuff that keeps them up at night. That's the kind of thing you want to be writing to. That's the kind of thing that you want to be engaging with them on. And I think one of the biggest tools that I could ever encourage is just the act of talking to your clients. Mm -hmm. But what I would do is record those sessions, get permission and consent, record those sessions, and then take that transcript and stick it into a word bank. And a word bank for me is just literally looking at how often do certain words come up. So you can use things like a word cloud generator is a great hack for doing this. So find a word cloud generator, stick all of the words from your transcript in there, and then download it. It basically filters and sorts itself into a mini corpus and you can see which words come up more often than others so I do this a lot of the time um, building corpuses for my clients it's the same principle and what I do is I look at how how often does a certain adjective come up how often does a certain verb come up what am I actually saying about what I offer for my customers versus what they're telling me because a lot of the time we have these misperceptions we have these internal narratives about I offer this kind of advice and your customer's going, no, 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 you do something similar, but you actually do much more for me in this particular area that's far more impactful and useful, which is why I call myself an audience whisperer, because I will go and talk to your clients and say, this is what they're telling me about the value you actually add. So get your word cloud, download it. It will filter and sort for you by the number of word appearances. Have a look at that and just sense check. Are these messages coming out in the comms I've had with my clients? Are they in my copy online? Do they appear on my website? Are they part of my LinkedIn messaging? And things like that. The other thing to do, especially if you are in a science or a technology sphere or any kind of maybe high level education, check your readability. Readability is a crucial part of any strategy. And I'm sure any copywriter worth their salt will tell you the exact same thing. So linguistically, we tend to measure readability by a number of different formulae. That can be the Gunning-Fogg index, that can be Coleman-Liao. There are a number of different really great mm. formulas. 
run a couple, get an average, great website out there called readability.com, mm-hmm. um, who, if they ever want to sponsor me, I'm more than welcome to do so. But the, uh, <laughs> you can put your copy in there and it will give you a ballpark. It's like a Hemingway app, for example. Yeah. It will give you a really good indication how many syllables per sentence have you used. The more syllables, the more words in that sentence, the harder it's going to be for people to understand. And we need to bear in mind that a lot of our audience now, because we're in a globalized workforce, they're not necessarily native English speakers. So you have to think about people who are using English as a second or a third language, people who might be using translation apps. All this kind of thing is going to give your copy a much better chance of landing with people in the right way. The other thing to do is to test your messaging. So go to your clients, ask them if it makes sense, ask them if this resonates with them, do a bit of audience research. And I know you do a lot of research-driven work, Ella, but that is, again, such a crucial thing. Linguistics is about data. So get the data and make data-informed choices about your comms and your copy and just keep refining and testing as you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a lot of similarities, I think, with some of the work that I do, particularly when I'm thinking about um, brand voice and creating a brand voice um, audit or strategy for for clients um, just so that they can be consistent in their messaging. But that's the first step. But yes, using those those tools that are available and those indexes to see how long the sentences are, what the readability is. I think the lower the reading age, kind of the better, is it about 11, which is the ideal reading age? Yeah, yeah, but very easily, if we've been schooled and educated and whatever, very easily we slip into more difficult language and complicated words and all of a sudden our reading age is for university graduates and that's not resonating with... um, with a lot of our audience necessarily, or people are just losing it. You know, they're reading so far and then they're skipping because it's not it's not hitting the mark. So yeah, there's some really good tools and some really good um, information there. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's a pleasure. And yeah, the fact it's a very data driven as well is is interesting to me. I mean, the more businesses are online, um, and the more we use apps and social media accounts and and all the tools, the more measurable our work becomes. Essentially, if it's online, we can probably measure it. There's some statistics. I can jump in with just one last point there on that data-driven side of things is you're absolutely right. Because we live in a digital world, it's really easy to measure your metrics and see how you're doing. It's also very easy to find yourself at the mercy of other people's bias online because we're we're in an echo chamber now right so we're in we're in spaces where we get more of the same thing of what we like so it's very easy to see your copy sounding a lot like other people's or it's very easy to see the same messages coming out again and again and again you're thinking how do I differentiate one of the best tools for that is uh so my my work in linguistics my specialized in my degree was critical discourse analysis so actually reading between the lines with a fine tooth comb great practice um <coughs> to have a look at any of their articles and think to yourself what's actually being said here so the headlines are usually misreading so things like you know amanda holden flashes bikini body over 54 on ibiza beach that's the kind of thing where literally what's happening factually is woman is wearing a swimsuit on the beach. But mm-hmm. the, the way that they have used certain words are implying and inferring a number of different, probably not very flattering things about that individual. So having a look at how people are marketing their copy, it's very easy to twist numbers and twist metrics from a statistics perspective to make everything sound more exciting. But just taking that very critical eye and taking the time to read through what you're doing 
don't necessarily take everything that you read at face value. And critical yeah. discourse analysis is a great tool for just getting behind the bias of what you might be seeing on a regular basis. Yeah, that's really fascinating because, of course, we are fed a lot of stuff from the media. I want to say it's subliminal messaging. You know, it, it's that stuff that comes through and subconsciously we're acknowledging it. But yes, if you just look at the logical cold hard data there you might not see it so you do have to go a bit deeper and I guess that's what you will do when you're looking at a piece of text or the context of some work and um, listening is actually a vital skill that we need to improve our listening you're absolutely right listening is one of the most vital skills and possibly one of the trickiest skills to cultivate and I've been on training programs where people talk about the six layers of active listening um, and a variety of other things. And I think ultimately a lot of people want to try and get to a point where they can hold a conversation and have their kind of critical narrative running in their head at the same time say, right, so this person's saying this, what are they actually saying? And what could this possibly mean? And how much context do I have for this? I think sometimes the best thing to do is actually just to listen. And as basic and as unhelpful a piece of advice as that is, don't wait for them to finish their sentence so you can add something. I think one of the best things to do is to adopt this attitude of, I, I have something to learn from every single person that I encounter and to listen with ears that are primed for that new thing. And I think even if you don't necessarily learn something new, you're adopting an attitude of curiosity and I guess a degree of humility as well. I think when you are a small business owner, and when you get really good at what you do, it can be easy to think that you know it all. I am 110% guilty of that. And it can be very humbling to have a chat with a client and realize, oh, actually, I just didn't quite pick up on that because I was too excited about what I was going to say in the next sentence. So I think taking the time to slow down and the, the, the trick that I use, which is a kind of like I call it a pass back, is to respond to the client and say, OK, so I've just heard you say that. And what I've understood what I have received from you is X, Y, and Z. And they'll go either, yes, you've got it, in which case, great, I know I'm on the right track with building relationship and empathy, or I give them an opportunity to course correct and say, okay, so you've got some of that right, but actually I would rather speak more to X, Y, and Z here. So you give them an opportunity to correct in the moment. So you start to build this relationship and then that helps them to feel heard and seen is really vital again those relationships in any small business is so important but it also means that you take some of the pressure off having to remember everything perfectly at the end of the call sometimes also again just asking for consent to record is really helpful especially if you're someone who likes to go back over their notes because it gives you the chance to listen again and i think that's one of the hardest things is that we assume that communication like listening has taken place mm. and it hasn't always so don't be shy of asking for confirmation or correction in the moment i think that's a really good skill to develop yeah, it is. And you're right. It is totally a skill. And it's one that I'm learning as a, in my podcast interviews and everything. And sometimes in meetings and Zoom calls, I'm but sometimes think I'm very quick to jump in on those silent moments because I don't want to create any awkward pauses or I want to show how smart I am, you know, talking about you know the thing they've done. But actually, if we can just refrain from doing that and just take a step back. And I think not excessive note taking as well. Um helps just to, to be face to face with someone have a conversation and remember to pause and listen it, it's definitely a skill to nurture but you know do that effectively um and I think you will be able to mirror back um what you've heard your clients say which is is really important 
And then they also have the experience of how they do that for their clients. So when you start to talk to their customers, you get the, if you're working in B2B, for example, you then give them the experience of what it feels like to feel heard. So they have an emotional yardstick for when it comes to their customers and how they feel heard. So if you work in a big company um, who has a sales department, go and talk to your sales, or if you even have a call center, those are people on the front line who are interacting with your clients every single day. They are a gold mine that you are sitting on of customer-based information. What frustrates them? What upsets them? When they're happy, what are the words that they use? Perk your ears up for that kind of language, that kind of vocabulary. And just as you said there, Ella, mirror it back. Mirror it in your comms, in your strategies, in the, the content that you put out, the messages that you write. And that will help your audience over time to feel much more seen and heard. And just one last thing on the Zoom call that you mentioned there, one of the struggles that we have with silence in a, a an almost an artificial environment. So sure, we're face to face right now, but we're still in an artificial communication environment. Silence on a Zoom call doesn't mean silence. It means breakdown of technology, which means that silence is more stressful on a Zoom call than it is in person. There's not a lot of room for comfortable silence on Zoom because we assume that my internet bandwidth has just choked me off. So it makes a lot of sense that people feel that they need to fill those silences to check that everything is still working okay. So that's, I would just maybe mention that in there and, and help people to remind themselves that they do a really good job, generally speaking, um, in the Zoom calls that we have. We're much better at doing it than we were at the start of the pandemic, but still give yourself some grace there because it's still not a natural environment for us to communicate. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything I haven't asked you yet? focusing on things like your second person pronoun especially for all my conversion copywriters out there you'll know this already but it's so vital the thing is do you know how to measure it so measuring second person pronoun usage which is you the word you putting that on your website and personalization of any kind can be shown to increase engagement by up to 35 percent, especially in email titles and preview lines Putting the word you in there tells your audience where your priorities are, and that is with them. But the way to measure it, such a great hack for measuring this, take all your copy. And if you want, you can do this as an audit for anyone who's listening for your own website mm. right now. Take all the copy and scrape it off your website, put it in a Word document, and then highlight the or search for the yous and yours that are in your copy. Make sure you put a you after space. Sometimes you can get, again, yours or youngs or things like that. And then count the number of times that that happens and then count your overall word count and work out the percentage of how often you have used you and your versus the rest of your copy. Mm. Microsoft has something like 0.8% on theirs, which tells you everything you need to know. Not that I'm just thinking <laughs> But the, the, the principle of the thing is that if you're basically between something like 35 and 7%, probably doing a really good job but it's just a way of measuring it's a gentle benchmark a way of measuring how focused you are on your copy one of my dear friends Zineb Layahi came up with a, a phrase or we have a, a phrase that we share with each other which is don't we on your copy don't use the word <laughs> we before you use the word you anywhere if you are in an audience or client focused industry because you are going to turn people off it's so selfish but we love to hear about ourselves and being able to focus and show your focus on that other person forges relationships, builds trust, builds credibility. When you only have a couple of seconds for someone's consideration span to let you come in, pay attention to you, you've got to make the most of that time. And using the second person pronoun effectively is a really good way to do that. Right. Yeah. I know it's the you rule. Um, I love how you flip the switch on that. Don't we on your copy. Um, Don't we on your copy. Every instance that you write of we and our and my and you're turning your reader off on it because we have to remember that 
people, whatever they're interacting with on a daily basis, are asking the question, they're carrying the suitcase question with them everywhere, what's in it for me? You know, we want to know what's in it for us. It has to be relevant to us. Otherwise, you know, we live in a distracted world. We haven't got time. We're going to move on to the thing that is relevant. So as a reader, if you see the word you, you know, the copy's addressing you personally. So that is a very good one. And to measure it is a great idea as well. I know about the you rule. Have I measured the instances of you in a particular piece of copy? No, but I will now. I'll go away and have a go at that and find that magic percentage. So anything over three and a half percent is good. You're doing really good. Yeah. As always, take it with a grain of salt. It's one of those, you know, and also read your copy aloud. This is, you know, coming back to that verbal communication perspective. If you're worried that your copy is not sounding very human, read it aloud. I mean, I actually got that advice from an English teacher in high school, but it has stuck with me for my whole life because you can hear immediately, ooh, something's not quite right. And maybe you need to tweak that word here or that doesn't that sentence is too long because I'm running out of breath halfway through. All of that is a really good way of making sure your copy sounds human. And if you sound human, people are more likely to interact with you again. Yeah. Give them, a, give them a really good reason to choose you. Um, yeah. And the other, the final thing, I guess, from my side is that no one is obliged to read your copy. No one owes it to you to read what you've written. So you've got to give them a bloody good reason to keep reading. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, this came home to me very recently. I've been reading Enid Blyton books, you know, the famous five, the faraway tree to my young daughters. And reading those out loud are much easier to read than some other bedtime stories that I read. The flow, the rhythm is really, um, is really good. The words just come naturally. And, and I think I need to be a bit more Enid Blyton in my own writing to make sure that it all lovely. sounds lovely and works well. Fabulous. Fantastic. Eloise, it's been brilliant to have you on. I thank you so much. Um, I think this is a topic that we can revisit. And I'd love to hear questions if anybody's got any uh, questions on this topic, because I think we could talk more about different aspects of linguistics. It is a broad subject area, but there are some very simple ways to apply it and to apply some of this good rule so that we are the message that we are writing and speaking and giving out is the one that's being that we want to be received by our audience. So where can people learn a bit more about you? Well, I would love to connect on LinkedIn. You can search Eloise Leeson. I think I'm one of the few that pops up. So um, Eloise Leeson, or you can find me over at Olim, which is the name of my consultancy. And that's O-L-I-M-C-O-M-M-S for comms, olimcoms.com. You can find emails over there if you want to catch up or or just even ask questions, any queries or, you know, complaints. That's fine too. Um, But you can find me over on LinkedIn or on my website. I would love to hear from you. And just before we go, remind me, there's a story behind your business name. Uh, the name of Olim, just explain to me where that originates from. So the word Olim is actually a Latin word meaning once. And it used to be used on occasion to start a story. So like once upon a time. Um, but it was more often used in the Roman praetoriums. And it was used as a way of saying, everybody, shut up and listen. What we're about to say right now is of particular importance. So it was kind of like a cue to say, now you really need to, to tune your ears in. And I think for me, I love that word because it's it's a, a way of explaining what I want to try and do for my clients, which is to make sure that when they say something, their clients are ready to sit up and listen because it, rela- it relates directly to them. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Cracking Copy podcast with Ella Hoyos and Minnie McBride. Don't miss out on future episodes by making sure you hit subscribe down below to keep up with all our podcasts. And more details and resources are in our show notes. 
So we'll see you next time.